So we've already been called to so much this morning. We've been called to come to Christ. Uh, He is near to sinners. He is near. He came as a physician to heal the sick, not the well. And so we call out to him this morning. We've been called to come to that loving Savior. And we've been called to trust in every promise of God's word, to come to it and sit under it and receive it in faith and to trust what God says. You know, our own minds tell us a lot of different things. People in our lives tell us other things. And then we have our culture constantly spilling its things into our minds. And we come here on a day like today, on the Lord's Day, and we get to have divine things poured into our hearts, into our minds, and to calibrate ourselves with God's truth and to be reminded of his faithfulness, his promises, his love, his kindness to sinners. So already we've heard so much. We're grateful for that. Uh, Let me ask you at this point to go in your Bibles for this period of instruction to Romans 9, verses 6 to 13, and that's what this is in our service. This is part of our worship service. Uh, This is the portion where we are instructed together from God's Word. So uh, all that we're doing this morning is worship. This, too, is worship. I think sometimes uh, uh, parts of the worship service in churches become bits of entertainment. We hope that will never be the case here, that uh, everything we are doing is doxological. It is about us actively engaging with the worship of God that's happening here corporately. So Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. One of the most outstanding attributes of God is his faithfulness. There are many qualities, characteristics, attributes of God that we would point to and we probably all have our favorites, maybe based on our own uh, background or our own personality. We have those that we most think about when we worship the Lord, those that really capture us uh, more than others. But one of the outstanding attributes of God that we find in Scripture is His faithfulness, that He keeps His Word. He keeps His Word. You know, we talked about this attribute of God's faithfulness many times as we were going through Genesis. And, you know, even in talking with people as we were going through that book, it was neat to see how God was working in our hearts as a church and how he was reminding us that we can trust what God says. We can rely on him. We can look to him. He's not just this distant God uh, who basically has set everything in motion. He's not this uh, God of the agnostics who ha- may or may not be there, and, and if he is, we don't really know which one he is or what he is like, but we know we can trust him. The Christian gospel tells us that we can trust this God. We can bank everything on him and on his word. We can rely on him, lean on him entirely. And Genesis taught us that, I think, in many ways. To be faithful is to make promises and then to keep those promises. And frequently in Genesis, we talked about how God was the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He doesn't just make 
covenants, but he makes covenants, and then he ends space and time in the lives of real people in real concrete ways. He keeps those covenant promises. We watch this unfold from chapter to chapter in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Many little snapshots we got. We could probably call Genesis a chronicle of God's faithfulness. There are a lot of things that we could, a lot of taglines we could use for the book of Genesis as a whole, but one of those might be a chronicle of God's faithfulness. But we know that this chronicle of faithfulness doesn't end in Genesis. It's one of the major themes running throughout the whole Bible. And of course, when you pick up at the beginning of Exodus, you see God's faithfulness coming to bear on the enslaved Israelites. God remembers, God hears, God sees, God comes. And this faithfulness of God takes us right up to the Christ event where God climactically fulfilled millennia of promises in the coming of Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 20. Listen to how he describes God's faithfulness, and especially as it is centered on Christ. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus houses All of God's promises, Christ's person and his work houses all of God's promises. And he goes on to say, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So we see this faithfulness running from the very beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible and then exploding on the scene in a cataclysmic, culminating way in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as Romans chapter 9 begins, Paul recognizes that there appears to be a problem. So the faithfulness of God is a given for anyone who's reading the Old Testament. Anyone who is living as a Jew in Paul's day, the faithfulness of God is a given. But for Paul, as he begins Romans 9 through 11, there is a problem. The entire Old Testament was about God's faithfulness to a people. God's faithfulness to a real people in space and time, an ethnic people, a group of people. God's faithfulness to Israel, his chosen people, his chosen nation. As Paul says in verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Notice what Paul says here, to them belong the covenants and the promises. Those words are packed with God's faithfulness. To them belong, to who? To 
Israel, the nation, the people that, whose story runs all throughout the Old Testament. To them belong all of these things. To them belong the covenants and the promises. Therefore, to them belong the faithfulness, the covenant-keeping nature of God. But something has happened. The Christ has come. God himself, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has come in human flesh. When the Israelites rejected Christ, they rejected the God of Israel. God enfleshed. The Christ has come, in whom all the promises of God are yes, and this nation that belongs to God, a nation set apart unto God among all the nations of the world, has almost entirely rejected Christ. Almost entirely. Not all, but by and large, most. Gentiles are pouring into God's kingdom, but the Jews, the Israelites, largely remain outside. And as we saw last week, this brings Paul great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. I mean, just imagine, Paul is literally walking into these various cities and he's going into the synagogue and he's preaching to his people, deaf, cold, hard. His words bounce off their foreheads. They don't go into their minds. They don't go into their hearts. Rejection, rejection, rejection. And then he goes out and he's preaching and teaching to the Gentiles, the Thessalonians, the Philippians, the Corinthians, uh, these Gentile peoples, these peoples who worship Zeus and other gods, other Roman so-called gods. And they're coming in. They're being converted. They're coming to Christ. But when he goes to the Jews, nothing or very little. This entire phenomenon brings Paul great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. For he could wish that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, he says. Now, Paul, of course, knows that's impossible. He knows there's no way he could sacrifice himself for the salvation of Israel. It would not be efficacious, first of all. And second of all, he knows that he can never separate himself from the love of Christ, which he's just described at the end of chapter 8. So he knows that it's impossible, but he nonetheless here has this visceral, very real, emotional, authentic reaction to the unbelief of his people. And he expresses it in these terms. It is as though he could wish that he himself took their place, that they might be saved. So, we have to ask the question. I mean, for us reading this now, this is no big deal. I mean, we look back and we, we sort of know, we know that how history has progressed. And so, this was massive in Paul's day. The, the almost entire unbelief of Israel in the Christ, this is massive in his day. Has God dropped his people? I mean, we saw their failure all throughout the Old Testament, but God would always come back to them. He would always draw them back to himself. We see this, different periods from the very beginning, the Israelites sinning against God, 
grumbling in the wilderness, worshiping a golden calf after they have, have heard the glory of God. They've, they've seen the cloud and the fire. They've heard the booming voice of God. And Moses has gone up into the mountain. And the people, even Aaron, who was right there on the front lines of the plagues with Moses, build a golden calf and worship it and engage in all kinds of illicit practices there, worshiping this golden calf. And it didn't stop there. It continued throughout the history of Israel. But God would, would pick up his people. He would restore his people. He'd renew his people. But now the Christ has come. The culminating event has come. And they reject him. Has God rejected them? Has he broken his promises? Has the word of God failed? To anyone steeped in God's revelation, this was a big deal. That's what Paul seeks to answer in our passage for today. So that's what Paul seeks to answer throughout all of Romans 9 through 11. So really it's an unfolding thing. You know, we have to, we can't take all of Romans 9 through 11 in any one sermon. We're going to walk with Paul through these chapters and try to understand how he's, uh, how he's unpacking this, what's happened in history, how he understands it and how he explains it. And it's multidimensional. And this is the reason why I think many have, have fallen into different pits when it comes to interpreting these chapters is because we want to make it simple. We want to make everything so clear-cut and square. But what we find in Romans 9 through 11 is multidimensional. There are a lot of facets to what he has to say in these chapters. So today, Paul will begin to answer the question, has God's word failed? And he will continue to do that through these three chapters. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. By the way, let me just say this in terms of application or implication, uh, this should matter a great deal to us because you're asking the question, is God going to keep his promises to me? I mean, I, I stumble. I fail him. Daily, we fail him. We stumble. Sometimes in big ways. In big ways that impact many people. Is God going to drop me? Is God going to let me go? We sing, he will hold me fast, but do we really believe that? To be able to sing the song, he will hold me fast, with faith and confidence, we need to understand Romans 9 through 11. So let's come now to God's word and read this. We're going to read up through verse 13. Romans 9, verses 1 to 13, but our text for today is verses 6 to 13. This is God's holy word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, 
who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is a sad tone at this point. Very sad, grievous tone. Lots of question marks going off in our minds. And then we come to verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to God in prayer, ask for his help as we study his word together. Ask that God would bring his word to bear on our own situations, on our own hearts and our struggles with sin, our fight against indwelling sin and our struggle to trust him. You know, daily we we face a battle to trust the Lord. Satan loves when we doubt God, loves when we doubt his love for us, and so we, uh, we pray that God would use this to grow our confidence in the Lord. Father, we are so grateful to be here gathered together as your people, this local church. Father, we thank you for your people worldwide and, and that we have a, a specific people here gathered called Four Corners Church that we can be a part of as, as a picture of your a kingdom, as a, as a little Uh, expression of the universal church, this local church, a place where we can come and sing praises to you and serve your people, be served by your people, to sit under your word, and God, just to live out the Christian life, to walk this road of pilgrimage, to fight this battle that we face against indwelling sin. So God, we thank you that we're here today with your people. We ask that uh, this portion of your word would be clearly taught, God, that you would work in our hearts to, uh, to prick us and mold us and shape us to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would sanctify us through your word this morning. Not just in the big way, uh, Lord, sanctify us in our lives through your word, but that this very day, with this very text, with this very time of preaching, that you would, that you would sanctify your people. You would consecrate us to yourself, Lord, that we would love you more and hate sin more. And God, that we would be devoted to your name and not to our own glory or our own pursuits. Father, we ask that uh, throughout the remainder of this service, Lord, that our hearts would be focused on you and that there would be good fellowship today between believers. Uh, Go with us now, Father, by your spirit as you illuminate your word. In Christ's name, amen. So the title for the sermon today is God's Word 
stands. And as I said before, this really could be the title of a lot of Romans 9 through 11, uh, but it's at the very least the title for uh, what we have before us today, God's Word Stands. This is what Paul is arguing from the very beginning of verse 6. And you know that that's what this passage is about because that's where he starts there at the very beginning of verse 6. And in this section that runs up through verse 13, he does this in two interrelated parts. And so as Paul argues that God's word stands in the face of mass Israelite unbelief, in the face of the nation largely rejecting its Christ, in the face of that, God's word stands. And here he gives two aspects of, of the reason why God's word stands. And so the first is God's children, and the second, God's choice. Or I should say, the first concerns God's children, and the second concerns God's choice. So let's look first at God's children. For this, we're going to go to verses 6 to 9. So let's go ahead and reread those verses. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So there's the big idea of the whole passage. <clears throat> For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God... But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Israel. God's special people. Moses reminds them of their status throughout the book of Deuteronomy. So if you want to kind of get a sense for who Israel is, uh, who it is that received the, the, the glory and the promises, covenants, and all that's packed into verse 4, then Deuteronomy is a really good place to go. We see a couple passages there that just explain how special Israel is as a nation, as a people to the Lord. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, Moses says to his fellow Israelites, For what great nation is there? That has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us. Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. So Moses is just looking around in awe and he's just like, guys, people, fellow Israelites, what an amazing thing. What a great nation that, that God has created in us, that he would be so near to us, that he would reveal himself so clearly to us, that he would give us such righteous statutes to live by. And then Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. This is how Moses describes the people. For you are a people Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So, you know, we go back to the table of nations in Genesis 10. 
You know, that genealogy of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and all the nations that spread out over the earth after Noah came off of the ark through his three sons. And of all the the people on the face of the planet, all the peoples on the earth, God put his love, set his love on this people, this specific nation, this specific group of people. They are called his treasured possession. In the Old Testament, they are likened to his wife, his bride, and they are called his son, collectively as one. His bride and his son. Now we know as human beings that There are no closer relationships really that exist on the planet than the relationship between a person and his or her spouse and a person and his or her children. So God expresses this treasuredness of his people, the the preciousness of his people in these ways, his wife and his son. In Paul's day, The Jewish mindset, so now fast forward from Deuteronomy, 1,500 years before Christ. Fast forward to Paul's day. And in Paul's day, the Jewish mindset was characterized by presumption on God's kindness to Israel as a distinct nation. So what should have been this sort of humble awe and adoration of God had turned into this very arrogant very prideful, very ethnocentric presumption on God's kindness. Many individual Israelites or Jews assumed that they were okay simply because they were ethnic descendants of Abraham. We're good, we're special, and you're not. That's the way many in Paul's day lived. And we saw Paul address that in chapter 2, which I'll cite a bit more in a moment. Uh, we see this, this, this way of being among the Jews in Christ's day and afterwards. We see this in several places, and it gets attacked in several places in the New Testament. So I want to give you three places where we see this, this mindset among the Jews in general and ways that we see it being attacked within the New Testament. So first, let's look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist attacks it in his preaching in Matthew chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. Listen to what he says as religious leaders come out to hear him, to see his baptism and to kind of see what this crazy guy in the wilderness who eats bugs is up to. And he's out there preaching and living in the wilderness. And so they come out to see him and And he begins to speak to them. He begins to rebuke them and admonish them. And he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Well, that implies people are doing that. That's happening in that day. There's a mindset, a prevailing mindset among the Jews. And it's coming to expression in their leaders that, well, we are descendants of Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. This kind of arrogant presumption. John the Baptist goes on to say, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, 
The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So that's the first instance that I want you to see of the mindset being there and then how it's attacked. John the Baptist attacks it in that way. Then we come to Jesus during his ministry and his challenge to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, verses 39 and 40. They answered him, Abraham is our father. It's the same thing that you get with John the Baptist, this presumption based on their identity as Israelites, as descendants of Abraham. So they tell Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. <laughs> so uh, Jesus draws a clear contrast, a distinction between what they are doing, which shows who they are, and what Abraham did and who he was. Abraham is our father, and Jesus says, is he? And then in Romans chapter 2, we get the same thing from the Apostle Paul. So we've got John the Baptist, we've got the Lord, and then we have the Apostle Paul. And starting in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, If you call yourself a Jew, so he's already starting out. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and he goes on and says all these things that basically is the, 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 the boast of Jews in that day, but he's calling it into question if you call yourself a Jew. And then later he says in verses 28 to 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay, let me stop there, and let's try to put all of this together. According to John the Baptist, some of Abraham's ethnic descendants will receive not the promises, but the acts. Some of Abraham's descendants will receive the acts. They are non-fruit-bearing trees that will be cut down and thrown into the fire. According to Jesus, you can be an ethnic descendant of Abraham and yet fail to be one of Abraham's children. Jesus makes that clear. He goes on to call them children of your father, the devil. Paul here in this passage in Romans 9 equates being a child of Abraham with being a child of God. He, he uses those, uh, that language parallel with, with one another. He, he says the children of Abraham, children of God. What Jesus says to those in John 8 is that they are not children of Abraham. They are not children of God. They are children of Satan. And then according to Paul in Romans 2, one may be an ethnic descendant of Abraham and call himself a Jew and yet merely be one outwardly or physically, just an outward Jew, a physical Jew, a, a real-time ethnic descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could maybe trace his or her 
<coughs> excuse me, ancestry all the way back to one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and yet merely be a Jew outwardly and physically. Such individuals, according to Paul, fail to be true Jews. So why do I cover all of this background? I think it's important for us to understand what Paul's saying in this passage. What we've just seen from John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul earlier in Romans 2 is exactly what Paul has in view here in Romans 9, verses 6 to 9. Let me summarize it this way for you. Within ethnic Israel, there is true Israel. Just make it very clear like that, very concise. Within ethnic Israel, there is true Israel. Israel, among all the offspring of Abraham, there are true children. The nation, the people, corporately belong to God. So there's this kind of corporate and individual dynamic that goes on in Romans 9 through 11 that makes it difficult, I think, to interpret. And that's the reason why I think there are various kinds of of, of ditches that you can fall in as you interpret Romans 9 through 11, because there is this, this corporate and this individual dynamic that's going on in this larger chunk. The nation, the people, corporately belong to God. And as a people, they are recipients of God's promises. And yet within this people, this singular corporate nation, some, not all, are true descendants of Abraham. One way to think about it is this. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, All of those people there gathered as they uh, gloriously leave. The Pharaoh says, go! And they gloriously just leave and go out into the wilderness. Among that massive bunch of a million plus people there gathered, not all of those people love the Lord. Not all of those people trust the Lord. And we see that gets played out in the wilderness. The earth opens up at a point and swallows some of them. Serpents get sent out to bite some of them. We see that, uh, by and large, the entire people heirs. But nonetheless, we know that there are some among them who are true believers. And we see this at the time of when the spies are sent in. Joshua and Caleb are representative of that. And Moses. Some believe, some love the Lord, some are children of God, true children of Abraham, and some are not. Going back to Romans 4, verse 12, those who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Those are the descendants of Abraham. Those who walk in the footsteps of faith that Abraham had. And then, of course, we have the quotation from Habakkuk in Romans 1.17. The righteous shall live by faith. And then we get that list of individuals in Hebrews 11, that hall of faith where we get those, those individuals who exercised faith in the Old Testament, representatives of the nation as a whole or those within the nation who were true believers. So the question that Paul is dealing with is this. Has God's word of promise to Israel failed because the great majority of Israel has rejected Christ? The great majority of Israel is accursed and cut off from Christ. Therefore, has God's word of promise fallen to the ground? Answer part one, no. 
because not all descendants are true Israel. Some are, and those have believed in Christ. Paul will go on to describe these as a remnant later in these chapters. Paul explains this answer by going back to Genesis. He goes back to Ishmael and Isaac. He doesn't mention Ishmael, but he's very much in the background. Ishmael was also a descendant of Abraham, but that did not suffice for him to be part of the people of God. Merely being a descendant of Abraham did not make Ishmael part of the people of God. Instead, God's promise came through Isaac. And we see this in chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 21, and chapter 18, verses 10 and 14. And in this sense, Isaac becomes a type. Isaac becomes a type of those who truly believe. To be an unbelieving Israelite, now catch this, this is, this is what we need to kind of wrap our minds around. To be an unbelieving Israelite, like John was speaking to, like Jesus was speaking to, like, like Paul was writing to in Romans 2, to be an unbelieving Israelite is to be like Ishmael. You see that? To be an unbelieving Israelite, though you be a descendant of Isaac, is to be like Ishmael, not part of the promise. But to be a believing Israelite is to be a descendant of the child of promise, Isaac, and to be part of the promise. I told you this is going to get a little bit weed infested. This is something that we really have to enter into to understand what Paul is saying as he goes back to Genesis and he's interpreting those texts. But this is basically what Paul is saying. As Paul says in verse 8, the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So, in response to the question, has God's word of promise to Israel failed? Paul says, no. The true children of Abraham in his day, what he will later call the remnant, as I said before, the children of the promise, the children of God are recipients of those promises. <laughs> those promises have not fallen to the ground because true Israel within Israel has very much received those promises. Case in point, Paul and all the other apostles. God has been faithful to Israel. Nowhere in the Bible does God promise that he will save every individual Israelite. Nowhere. God, does, God never makes that promise. And here's the thing. That promise had been perverted. What God had promised in the Old Testament had been perverted and twisted by the time you get to the Jews of Paul's day to mean that every single descendant of Israel would be saved. And God had never promised anything like that. Now I think later as we get to Romans 11, there is a, a corporate salvation that is part of Paul's answer to this question. But we're not there yet. Right now, Paul's answer to the question is that not all Israel is Israel. God does not promise he will save everyone. This was a false fortress of comfort for many in Paul's day. So I just want to pause there and ask you this question. We talked about this when we were in Romans 2. But are you living in a false fortress of comfort. And here I particularly want to speak to the children of believers. 
or maybe the spouse of a believer. Maybe though all that we're talking about here is a bit distant from you, maybe you are in kind of the same boat. You're thinking like a first century Israelite whom Paul is, is, uh, is, is engaging with as he goes through this letter and, and other places. Maybe you are thinking in terms of your identity in relationship to your parents who are believers. Surely God will save me. I, my parents are, are saved. My parents are Christians. I'm okay. I'm good. And I think little children, very small children, may have this understanding and as they're growing up. And so it's our job as parents to constantly tell them, look, Christ must be your Lord. He must be your Redeemer. Just because he's my Lord and my Redeemer does not make him your Lord and your Redeemer. You, by God's providence, this is you speaking to your child, by God's providence and grace have been given Christian parents. And you are being bathed in the sanctifying, saving word of God. But you must trust Christ for yourself. You cannot have this false fortress of security and comfort in your parents' identity in Christ. And I think this is the same for people whose spouses are believers. And also I think it applies to people who maybe have just grown up in church. And maybe you're here this morning and you just kind of, you're one of those, one of those cultural Christians. Bible Belt, a remnant, the Bible Belt's going away, but a remnant of the Bible Belt. And you're hanging on and you, this is what you do and you know, this is what mom and dad did, it's what grandma and grandpa did, it's what we do. We go to church, we got a Bible, we got to get the kids in church. I've heard that so many times. No, you got to get yourself in church. You got to get the kids in church. Yeah, we got to get the kids in church. Got to get the kids back in church. As though it's just some sort of moral development device for your children. Oh, you need to get your own soul in church and under God's word. But just being in church does not make a person saved. And so it's just a call right now as we pause and we think about this. Is Christ your Lord? Is he your Savior personally? Have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and submitted to him as Lord? So that's the first thing that Paul goes to is God's children, God's true children, Abraham's true offspring. Secondly, we come to God's choice. And for this, we look at verses 10 to 13. So go with me there if you would. Verses 10 to 13. And not only so, so he's continuing his argument, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You know, these words and what Paul will go on to say in the next few verses, they're an affront to all human pride. They're an affront to all human rationalism. God's sovereignty. And there have been attempts by interpreters to, to try the best they can. I mean, it's amazing sometimes. I've seen this at read, reading commentaries and preaching through various passages of Scripture that an otherwise really sound, careful commentator 
all of a sudden will just just veer right off the road, come smashing into a tree when it conflicts with his theological tradition. Issues on election or, honestly, baptism. Other issues. It's just like all of a sudden marching along quite careful and then it's like that. You just got to kind of twist or go, to, go around or, or finagle or whatever else. There are many different issues we see. And we're all susceptible to this, right? We all bring our own baggage to interpreting God's word. But we all have blind spots. We all, we're, we're learning in community with God's people. But man, what you see sometimes as people come to passages like this. So, Imagine you are a Jew in Paul's day. You may respond to what Paul said with something like this. Well, okay, okay, Paul. Of course, the descendants of Ishmael, and let's go ahead and throw in Keturah's children. Remember them? After Sarah dies, Abraham remarries Keturah. He has Keturah, has children with her. So, of course, the descendants of Ishmael and Keturah's children are not part of God's people. Yes, of course. But we, Paul, are descendants of the child of promise. We are descendants of Isaac through Rebekah. We are necessarily part of that people of promise. And to that, Paul turns to the case of Esau. So Paul has gone from Ishmael, though Ishmael's not mentioned, to Esau. It's easy to dismiss Ishmael, the son of Hagar, an example of Abram and Sarai's taking matters into their own hands, the child of the flesh versus the child of promise. You get to see that real literally as you go through, you know, but uh, the birth of Ishmael is the result of Sarai and Abram basically conspiring to come up with a way to do God's job for him because he's not doing it very well. But Isaac is the child of delayed promise. So now, Paul continues down the line to the descendant of Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. Does being a descendant of Isaac mean that you are in? So we've already talked about how being a descendant of Abraham doesn't automatically mean that you are in because Abraham had uh, the child of promise. But now these people that Paul's talking to are not descendants of Ishmael, they're descendants of Isaac. And so now Paul wants to go ahead and keep marching along, and he goes on down to the next line. Esau and Jacob. Does being a descendant of Isaac mean that you are automatically in, that you will necessarily receive the promises? And many in Paul's day thought, yes, that is the case. In fact, there were these stories, rabbis shared this, that uh, Abraham is, is sitting at hell, at the doorway of hell, or it is as though Abraham is sitting there in a seat at the front door of hell, not on the hell side, but on the outside side. And he's sitting there, and any Jew, any descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who comes through to be dumped off into hell, Abraham stands up, he stops, and he redirects them onto Abraham's bosom, to his own bosom. (laughs) There he is, uh, redirecting them. So Abraham sending them away from hell because no Israelite could go to that place of judgment. But is that the case? No. Here the focus turns to God's election, God's choice. 
In the previous verses, Paul was focused on the idea of true Israel, true descendants of Abraham. God's word has not failed because not all Israelites belong to Israel. But now, he comes to another aspect of his answer. So, like I said, Paul's answer to this question is multidimensional, even here in this passage. First, not all Israel is true Israel, but second, he comes to this other aspect. He's still working from the idea of true Israel or true descendants, but now he wants to emphasize God's election, God's choice. Now, this is what I was referring to when I started these verses. This is the affront to human rationality and to human Pride, God's choice, God's choice. We live in a culture where everything's about our choice. We get to choose what we watch on TV, choose what we eat for dinner, choose where we spend eternity, choose what we do this afternoon. It's just all about human autonomy, human autonomy of expression, of fulfillment, and of choice. And then, the Bible's doctrine of election comes smashing into that reality and we have to deal with it. We have to figure out how that fits into our worldview or we submit our worldview to that worldview even with unanswered questions. So what's the big idea here? Even among Isaac's sons, not all were children of promise. Esau and his descendants were not, although he was the oldest. Jacob and his children were according to promise. On what basis? And this is the big idea. On the basis of God's choice. As I said before, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls so, what is Paul saying? In the previous portion, he said it's not based on descent. It is based on being true in your heart, being circumcised by the Spirit, as he said in chapter 2. But now what he says is that it is not based on descent, but on God's sovereign choice to save who he will. God's sovereign choice to save who he will. In other words, God called Jacob, not Esau. What? That's not fair. That's where we go. Immediately we go to that's not fair. But when we understand that all in Adam fell, and when we understand that all left to themselves have no regard for God whatsoever, and are sinners, by nature, children of wrath, then the fact that God would even choose one human being to save is an act of great mercy. But, but our mind doesn't go there because we're an entitlement culture. Our mind goes to, but that's not fair. Everyone is entitled to be chosen. Everyone is entitled to be called. God called Jacob not Esau. God set his love on Jacob, but rejected Esau to the point that it says in verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God's words. 
These things are difficult for us to wrap our minds around, difficult for us to understand. But it is a way of saying, Jacob I called and loved and chose, Esau I rejected. Why? Why did God do that? Why did God choose Jacob and reject Esau? Well, the text is abundantly clear, not because he saw anything better in Jacob, not because of Esau's unbelief and Jacob's belief. You may go on to read the narrative and you see that Jacob prized the birthright, but Esau rejected the birthright. He had no regard for the promises of God. Jacob seemed to have a regard for the promises that had been passed down. It wasn't because God saw that in them but because of God's purpose of election. God chose, as Ephesians 1.11 says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means that the faith we saw later in Jacob and the unbelief of Esau in selling his birthright came or were a result from, in Jacob's case, were a result from God's electing grace. And we're not the basis of it. Now notice the language here. You cannot get around this. Some have said, well, those who hold that God looked down into the future and he sees faith and then he, he chooses based on that faith. They say, well, here, it's no works. No works were done. That's what it says later. That no works. It wasn't according to works. It was according to faith. So God looked down into the future. He sees Esau. No faith. He sees Jacob. Not according to works, but Jacob believes. And so God chooses Jacob. He sets his love on Jacob. Could Paul be any more clear? Folks, could Paul be any more clear that that's not how it went down? When he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because (coughs) of him who sees faith. (coughs) That's not what it says. But because of him who calls. What we have here is unconditional election of Jacob, not Esau. Let me give you a quote from the church father, Augustine. He says, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. God doesn't choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. We're going to talk more about election next week, Lord willing. There's quite a bit there. But for now, it is important that we stop here and understand Paul's argument of why, for why God's word stands. Not all Israel is Israel. True Israel within ethnic Israel and God's purpose of election. God has saved those whom he has chosen in the time of Paul. And God in his sovereignty has chosen that Israel as a nation largely would fall away and the Gentiles would come in and then one day he would bring eschatological salvation to the people, to the nation as a corporate unity. I think that's the the message of Romans 9 through 11 as it unfolds. As I said before, we're not there yet, but that's where we are going. So as we finish up this morning, I just want to meditate for a moment on this idea of election and how it should affect our hearts. If we are Christians, God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be saved. 
Should that produce in us pride? No. It should produce humble gratitude beyond measure. You know, it struck me this week that for those who have been saved, for those whom God has graciously chosen to bestow eternal happiness and glory, listen to that. God, if you're a Christian, God has chosen you apart from yourself, purely, purely, purely by his grace, as pure as it gets, by his grace, by his mercy, he has chosen to make you eternally happy in Jesus Christ. In light of that, how could we ever complain about anything? How could we ever be discontent about anything? How could we ever act as though we are entitled to anything? The doctrine of election for the individual believer, for the person who is called, is so empowering for us living the Christian life in humble gratitude and in recognition of the fact that totally apart from anything we have done, God set in motion that which led to our salvation And he has chosen by his grace alone to make us eternally happy in Jesus. What a blessing. What a grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us and your faithfulness to us. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to Israel. Lord, we thank you for how this is explained in Romans 9 through 11, this multifaceted answer to the question of have you forgotten your people? Have you dropped your people? Have you failed in your word of promise? Lord, thank you that your word never fails, that every promise of your word, as uh, we were meditating on earlier, Lord, every promise of your word is true. And we can trust you, God. We thank you for that. Uh, We pray that you would draw our hearts to Christ this week, that we would rest in him, that we would rest in what uh, has been given to us in Jesus, that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and that we will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is not a Christian, I pray, Lord, that they would realize that the, the empty pleasures and empty pursuits of this life are but dirt and chaff and that they will never satisfy, and they will only end in death and judgment. God, I pray that they will see the glory of Jesus Christ and put their trust in him. God, would you be merciful to us today as we continue our service, and and would you bless us as we do the Lord's Supper and consider what he did for us visually displayed. In Jesus' name, amen.